Section 27 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 7. Chapter 13. Containing the great address of the landlady, the great learning of a surgeon, and the solid skill and casuistry of the worthy lieutenant. When the wounded man was carried to his bed, and the house began again to clear up from the hurry which this accident had occasioned, the landlady thus addressed the commanding officer. "'I am afraid, sir,' said she, "'this young man did not behave himself as well as he should do to your honours, and if he had been killed I suppose he had but his deserts. But to be sure, when the gentlemen admit inferior parsons into their company, they oft to keep their distance. But as my first husband used to say, few of them know how to do it. For my own part, I am sure I should not have suffered any fellows to include themselves into gentlemen's company. But I thought he had been an officer himself, till the sergeant told me he was but a recruit. Landlady, answered the lieutenant, you mistake the whole matter. The young man behaved himself extremely well, and is, I believe, a much better gentleman than the ensign who abused him. If the young fellow dies, the man who struck him will have most reason to be sorry for it, for the regiment will get rid of a very troublesome fellow who is a scandal to the army, and if he escapes from the hands of justice, blame me, madam, that's all. Ay, ay, good lackaday, said the landlady, who could have thought it? Ay, 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 I am satisfied your honour will see justice done, and to be sure it oft to be to every one. Gentlemen oft not to kill poor folks without answering for it. A poor man hath a soul to be saved, as well as his betters. Indeed, madam, said the lieutenant, you do the volunteer wrong. I dare swear he is more of a gentleman than the officer. Ay, cries the landlady, why, look you there now. Well, my first husband was a wise man. He used to say, you can't always know the inside by the outside. Nay, that might have been well enough, too, for I never sawed him till he was all over blood. Who would have thought it? Mayhap some young gentleman crossed in love. Good lackaday, if he should die, what a concern it will be to his parents. Why, sure, the devil must possess the wicked wretch to do such an act. To be sure, he is a scandal to the army, as your honour says, for most of the gentlemen of the army that ever I saw are quite different sort of people, and look as if they would scorn to spill any Christian blood as much as any men. I mean, that is, in a civil way, as my first husband used to say. To be sure, when they come into the wars, there must be bloodshed, but they are not to be blamed for that. The more of our enemies they kill there, the better, and I wish with all my heart they could kill every mother's son of them. Oh, fie, madam, said the lieutenant, smiling. All is rather too bloody-minded a wish. Not at all, sir, answered she. I am not at all bloody-minded, only to our enemies, and there is no harm in that. To be sure it is natural for us to wish our enemies dead, that the wars may be at an end, and our taxes be lowered, for it is a dreadful thing to pay as we do. Why, now, there is above forty shillings for window-lights, and yet we have stopped up all we could. We have almost blinded the house, I am sure. Says I to the exciseman, says I, I think you ought to favour us. I am sure we are very good friends to the government. And so we are for certain, for we pay a mint of money to em. And yet I often think to myself, the government doth not imagine itself more obliged to us than to those who don't pay em a farthing. Ay, ay, it's the way of the world." She was proceeding in this manner when the surgeon entered the room. The lieutenant immediately asked how his patient did, but he resolved him only by saying, better, I believe, than he would have been by this time if I had not been called. And even as it is, perhaps it would have been lucky if I had been called sooner. 
"'I hope, sir,' said the lieutenant, "'the skull is not fractured.' "'Hm,' cries the surgeon, "'fractures are not always the most dangerous symptoms. "'Contusions and lacerations are often attended with worse phenomena, "'and with more fatal consequences than fractures. "'People who know nothing of the matter conclude "'if the skull is not fractured, all is well. "'Whereas I had rather see a man's skull broke all to pieces "'than some contusions I have met with.' "'I hope,' says the lieutenant, "'there are no such symptoms here.' "'Symptoms,' answered the surgeon, "'are not always regular nor constant. "'I have known very unfavourable symptoms in the morning "'change to favourable ones at noon, "'and return to unfavourable again at night. "'Of wounds, indeed, it is rightly and truly said, "'Nemo repente fuit terpissimus.' "'I was once, I remember, called to a patient "'who had received a violent contusion in his tibia, "'by which the exterior cutis was lacerated, "'so that there was a profuse sanguinary discharge.' and the interior membranes were so divelicated that the os, or bone, very plainly appeared through the aperture of the vulnus, or wound. Some febrile symptoms intervening at the same time, for the pulse was exuberant and indicated much phlebotomy. I apprehended an immediate mortification, to prevent which I presently made a large orifice in the vein of the left arm, whence I drew twenty ounces of blood, which I expected to have found extremely sizy or glutinous, or indeed coagulated, as it is in pleuritic complaints. But, to my surprise, it appeared rosy and florid, and its consistency differed little from the blood of those in perfect health. I then applied a fomentation to the part, which highly answered the intention, and after three or four dressings the wound began to discharge a thick pus or matter, by which means the cohesion. But perhaps I do not make myself perfectly well understood, "'No, really,' answered the lieutenant. "'I cannot say I understand a syllable.' "'Well, sir,' said the surgeon, "'then I shall not tire your patience. "'In short, within six weeks my patient was able to walk upon his legs "'as perfectly as he could have done before he received the contusion.' "'I wish, sir,' said the lieutenant, "'you would be so kind only to inform me "'whether the wound this young gentleman hath had the misfortune to receive "'is likely to prove mortal.' "'Sir,' answered the surgeon, to say whether a wound will prove mortal or not at first dressing would be very weak and foolish presumption. We are all mortal, and symptoms often occur in a cure which the greatest of our profession could never foresee. But do you think him in danger? says the other. In danger, I surely, cries the doctor. Who is there among us who, in the most perfect health, can be said not to be in danger? Can a man, therefore, with so bad a wound as this, be said to be out of danger? All I can say at present is, that it is well I was called as I was, and perhaps it would have been better if I had been called sooner. I will see him again early in the morning, and in the meantime let him be kept extremely quiet, and drink liberally of water gruel. "'Won't you allow him sack-way?' said the landlady." "'Aye, aye, sack-way,' cries the doctor, "'if you will, provided it be very small. "'And a little chicken-broth, too,' added she. "'Yes, yes, chicken-broth,' said the doctor. "'It is very good.' "'Mayn't I make him some jellies, too?' said the landlady. "'Aye, aye,' answered the doctor. "'Jellies are very good for wounds, for they promote cohesion.' "'And indeed it was lucky she had not named soup or high sauces, "'for the doctor would have complied rather than have lost the custom of the house.' 
The doctor was no sooner gone than the landlady began to trumpet forth his fame to the lieutenant, who had not, from their short acquaintance, conceived quite so favourable an opinion of his physical abilities as the good woman, and all the neighbourhood entertained, and perhaps very rightly, for though I am afraid the doctor was a little of a coxcomb, he might be nevertheless very much of a surgeon. The lieutenant, having collected from the learned discourse of the surgeon that Mr. Jones was in great danger, gave orders for keeping Mr. Northerton under a very strict guard, designing in the morning to attend him to a justice of the peace, and to commit the conducting of the troops to Gloucester to the French lieutenant, who, though he could neither read, write, nor speak any language, was, however, a good officer. In the evening our commander sent a message to Mr. Jones, that if a visit would not be troublesome, he would wait on him. This civility was very kindly and thankfully received by Jones, and the lieutenant accordingly went up to his room, where he found the wounded man much better than he expected. Nay, Jones assured his friend that if he had not received express orders to the contrary from the surgeon, he should have got up long ago, for he appeared to be himself as well as ever, and felt no other inconvenience from his wound but an extreme soreness on that side of the head. "'I should be very glad,' quoth the lieutenant, "'if you was as well as you fancy yourself.' for then you could be able to do yourself justice immediately. For when a matter can't be made up, as in case of a blow, the sooner you take him out the better. But I am afraid you think yourself better than you are, and he would have too much advantage over you. I'll try, however, answered Jones, if you please, and will be so kind to lend me a sword, for I have none here of my own. My sword is heartily at your service, my dear boy, cries the lieutenant, kissing him. You are a brave lad, and I love your spirit, but I fear your strength. For such a blow, and so much loss of blood, must have very much weakened you. And though you feel no want of strength in your bed, yet you most probably would, after a thrust or two. I can't consent to your taking him out to-night, but I hope you will be able to come up with us before we get many days' march advance, and I give you my honour you shall have satisfaction, or the man who hath injured you shan't stay in our regiment. I wish, said Jones, it was possible to decide this matter to-night. Now you have mentioned it to me, I shall not be able to rest. Oh, never think of it, returned the other. A few days will make no difference. The wounds of honour are not like those in your body. They suffer nothing by the delay of cure. It will be altogether as well for you to receive satisfaction a week hence as now. But suppose, says Jones, I should grow worse and die of the consequences of my present wound. Then your honour, answered the lieutenant, will require no reparation at all. I myself will do justice to your character, and testify to the world your intention to have acted properly if you had recovered. Still, replied Jones, I am concerned at the delay. I am almost afraid to mention it to you, who are a soldier, but though I have been a very wild young fellow, still in my most serious moments, and at the bottom, I really am a Christian. So am I, too, I assure you, said the officer, and so zealous a one, that I was pleased with you at dinner for taking up the cause of your religion. "'and I am a little offended with you now, young gentleman, "'that you should express a fear of declaring your faith before any one.' "'But how terrible it must be,' cries Jones, "'to any one who is really a Christian, "'to cherish malice in his breast, "'in opposition to the command of him who hath expressly forbid it. "'How can I bear to do this on a sick-bed? "'Or how shall I make up my account "'with such an article as this in my bosom against me?' "'Why, I believe there is such a command,' cries the lieutenant, "'but a man of honour can't keep it and you must be a man of honour if you will be in the army. I remember I once put the case to our chaplain over a bowl of punch, and he confessed there was much difficulty in it, but he said he hoped there might be a latitude granted to soldiers in this one instance, and to be sure it is our duty to hope so, 
for who would bear to live without his owner? No, no, my dear boy, be a good Christian as long as you live, but be a man of honour too, and never put up an affront. Not all the books, nor all the parsons in the world, shall ever persuade me to that. I love my religion very well, but I love my honour more. There must be some mistake in the wording of the text, or in the translation, or in the understanding of it, or somewhere or other. But however that may be, a man must run the risk, for he must preserve his honour. So compose yourself to-night, and I promise you you shall have an opportunity of doing yourself justice. Here he gave Jones a hearty bus, shook him by the hand, and took his leave. But though the lieutenant's reasoning was very satisfactory to himself, it was not entirely so to his friend. Jones, therefore, having resolved this matter much in his thoughts, at last came to a resolution, which the reader will find in the next chapter. Chapter 14. A most dreadful chapter, indeed and which few readers ought to venture upon in an evening, especially when alone. Jones swallowed a large mess of chicken, or rather cock, broth, with a very good appetite, as indeed he would have done the cock if it was made of, with a pound of bacon into the bargain. And now, finding in himself no deficiency of either health or spirit, he resolved to get up and seek his enemy. But first he sent for the sergeant, who was his first acquaintance among these military gentlemen. Unluckily, that worthy officer, having, in a literal sense, taken his fill of liquor, had been some time retired to his bolster, where he was snoring so loud that it was not easy to convey a noise in at his ears capable of drowning that which issued from his nostrils. However, as Jones persisted in his desire of seeing him, a vociferous drawer at length found means to disturb his slumbers, and to acquaint him with the message, of which the sergeant was no sooner made sensible than he arose from his bed, and having his clothes already on, immediately attended. Jones did not think fit to acquaint the sergeant with his design, though he might have done it with great safety, for the halberdier was himself a man of honour, and had killed his man. He would therefore have faithfully kept this secret, or indeed any other which no reward was published for discovering, but as Jones knew not those virtues in so short an acquaintance, his caution was perhaps prudent and commendable enough. He began, therefore, by acquainting the sergeant, that as he was now entered into the army, he was ashamed of being without what was perhaps the most necessary implement of a soldier, namely a sword, adding that he should be infinitely obliged to him if he could procure one. For which, says he, I will give you any reasonable price, nor do I insist upon its being silver-hilted, only a good blade, and such as may become a soldier's thigh. The sergeant, who well knew what had happened, and had heard that Jones was in a very dangerous condition, immediately concluded, from such a message, at such a time of night, and from a man in such a situation, that he was light-headed. Now, as he had his wit, to use that word in its common signification, all was ready, he bethought himself of making his advantage of this humour in the sick man. Sir, says he, I believe I can fit you. I have a most excellent piece of stuff by me. It is not indeed silver-hilted, which, as you say, doth not become a soldier, but the handle is decent enough, and the blade one of the best in Europe. It is a blade that, a blade that, in short, I will fetch it you this instant, and you will see it and handle it. I am glad to see your honour so well, with all my heart. Being instantly returned with the sword, he delivered it to Jones, who took it and drew it, and then told the sergeant it would do very well, and bid him name his price. The sergeant now began to harangue in praise of the, his goods. He said, nay, he swore very heartily, that the blade was taken from a French officer of very high rank at the Battle of Dettingen. I took it myself, says he, from his side, after I had knocked him on the head. 
The hilt was a golden one. That I sold to one of our fine gentlemen, for there are some of them, and please your honour, who value the hilt of a sword more than the blade. Here the other stopped him, and begged him to name a price. The sergeant, who thought Jones absolutely out of his senses and very near his end, was afraid lest he should injure his family by asking too little. However, after a moment's hesitation, he contented himself with naming twenty guineas, and swore he would not sell it to less for his own brother. Twenty guineas, says Jones in the utmost surprise. Sure you think I am mad, or that I never saw a sword in my life. Twenty guineas, indeed. I did not imagine you would endeavour to impose upon me. Here, take the sword. No, now I think on it, I will keep it myself, and show it your officer in the morning, acquainting him at the same time what a price you asked me for it. The sergeant, as we have said, had always his wit about him, and now plainly saw that Jones was not in the condition he had apprehended him to be. He now, therefore, counterfeited as great surprise as the other had shown, and said, I am certain, sir, I have not asked you so much out of the way. Besides, you are to consider it is the only sword I have, and must run the risk of my officer's displeasure by going without one myself. And truly putting all this together, I don't think twenty shillings was so much out of the way. Twenty shillings, cries Jones. Why, you just now asked me twenty guineas. How, cries the sergeant, sure your honour must have mistaken me, or else I mistook myself, and indeed I am but half awake. Twenty guineas indeed, no wonder your honour flew into a such a passion. I say twenty guineas too, no, no, I mean twenty shillings, I assure you. And when your honour comes to consider everything, I hope you will not think that so extravagant a price. It is indeed true you may buy a weapon which looks as well for less money, but— here Jones interrupted him, saying, I will be so far from making any words with you, that I will give you a shilling more than your demand. He then gave him a guinea, bid him return to his bed, and wished him a good march, adding he hoped to overtake them before the division reached Worcester. The sergeant very civilly took his leave, fully satisfied with his merchandise, and not a little pleased with his dexterous recovery from that false step into which his opinion of the sick man's light-headedness had betrayed him. As soon as the sergeant was departed, Jones rose from his bed and dressed himself entirely, putting on even his coat, which, as its colour was white, showed very visibly the streams of blood which had flowed down it. And now, having grasped his new-purchased sword in his hand, he was going to issue forth, when the thought of what he was about to undertake laid suddenly hold of him, and he began to reflect that in a few minutes he might possibly deprive a human being of life, or might lose his own. "'Very well,' said he. "'And in what cause do I venture my life? "'Why, in that of my honour. "'And who is this human being? "'A rascal who hath injured and insulted me without provocation. "'But is not revenge forbidden by heaven? "'Yes, but it is enjoined by the world. "'Well, but shall I obey the world in opposition to the express commands of heaven? "'Shall I incur the divine displeasure rather than be called, "'Huh, coward, scoundrel? "'I'll think no more.' I am resolved, and must fight him. The clock had now struck twelve, and every one in the house were in their beds, except the sentinel who stood to guard Northerton, when Jones, softly opening his door, issued forth in pursuit of his enemy, of whose place of confinement he had received a perfect description from the drawer. It is not easy to conceive a much more tremendous figure than he now exhibited. He had on, as we have said, a light-coloured coat, covered with streams of blood. His face, which missed that very blood, as well as twenty ounces more drawn from him by the surgeon, was pallid. Round his head was a quantity of bandage, not unlike a turban. In the right hand he carried a sword, and in the left a candle. 
so that the bloody banquet was not worthy to be compared to him. In fact, I believe a more dreadful apparition was never raised in a churchyard, nor in the imagination of any good people met in a winter evening over a Christmas fire in Somersetshire. When the sentinel first saw our hero approach, his hair began gently to lift up his grenadier cap, and in the same instant his knees fell to blows with each other. Presently his whole body was seized with worse than an og fit. He then fired his piece, and fell flat on his face. Whether fear or courage was the occasion of his firing, or whether he took aim at the object of his terror, I cannot say. If he did, however, he had the good fortune to miss his man. Jones, seeing the fellow fall, guessed the cause of his fright, at which he could not forbear smiling, not in the least reflecting on the danger from which he had just escaped. He then passed by the fellow, who was still continued in the posture in which he fell, and entered the room where Northerton, as he had heard, was confined. Here, in a solitary situation, he found an empty quart-pot standing on the table, on which some beer had been spilt. It looked as if the room had lately been inhabited, but at present it was entirely vacant. Jones then apprehended it might lead to some other apartment, but upon searching all around he could perceive no other door than that at which he entered, and where the sentinel had been posted. He then proceeded to call Northerton several times by his name, but no one answered. Nor did this serve to any other purpose than to confirm the sentinel in his terrors, who was now convinced that the volunteer was dead of his wounds, and that his ghost was come in search of the murderer. He now lay in all the agonies of horror, and I wished with all my heart some of those actors who are hereafter to represent a man frighted out of his wits had seen him, that they might be taught to copy nature instead of performing several antic tricks and gestures for the entertainment and applause of the galleries. Perceiving the bird was flown, at least despairing to find him, and rightly apprehending that the report of the firelock would alarm the whole house, our hero now blew out his candle, and gently stole back again to his chamber, and to his bed, whither he would not have been able to have gotten undiscovered, had any other person been on the same staircase, save only one gentleman who was confined to his bed by the gout. For before he could reach the door to his chamber, the hall where the sentinel had been posted was half full of people, some in their shirts, and others not half-dressed, all very earnestly inquiring of each other what was the matter. The soldier was now found lying in the same place and posture in which we just now left him. Several immediately applied themselves to raise him, and some concluded him dead, but they presently saw their mistake, for he not only struggled with those who laid their hands on him, but fell a-roaring like a bull. In reality he imagined so many spirits or devils were handling him, for his imagination being possessed with the horror of an apparition, converted every other object he saw or felt into nothing but ghosts and spectres. At length he was overpowered by numbers, and got upon his legs. When candles being brought, and seeing two or three of his comrades present, he came a little to himself. But when they asked him what was the matter, he answered, I am a dead man, that's all, I am a dead man. I can't recover it. I have seen him. What hast thou seen, Jack? says one of the soldiers. Why, I have seen that young volunteer that was killed yesterday. He then imprecated the most heavy curses on himself. If he had not seen the volunteer, all over blood, vomiting fire out of his mouth and nostrils, pass by him into the chamber where Ensign Northerton was, and then seizing the ensign by the throat, fly away with him in a clap of thunder. This relation met with a gracious reception from the audience. All the women present believed it firmly, and prayed heaven to defend them from murder. 
Amongst the men, too, many had faith in the story, but others turned it into derision and ridicule. And a sergeant who was present answered very coolly, "'Young man, you will hear more of this, for going to sleep and dreaming on your post.' The soldier replied, "'You may punish me if you please, but I was as broad awake as I am now, and the devil carry me away as he hath the ensign if I did not see the dead man, as I tell you, with eyes as big and as fiery as two large flambeaux.' The commander of the forces, and the commander of the house, were now both arrived, for the former being awake at the time, and hearing the sentinel fire his piece, thought it was his duty to rise immediately, though he had no great apprehensions of any mischief, whereas the apprehensions of the latter were much greater, lest her spoons and tankards should be upon the march, without having received any such orders from her. Our poor sentinel, to whom the sight of this officer was not much more welcome than the apparition, as he thought it, which he had seen before, again related the dreadful story, and with many additions of blood and fire, but he had the misfortune to gain no credit with either of the last-mentioned persons. For the officer, though a very religious man, was free from all terrors of this kind. Besides having so lately left Jones in the condition we have seen, he had no suspicion of his being dead. As for the landlady, though not overly religious, she had no kind of aversion to the doctrine of spirits, but there was a circumstance in the tale which she well knew to be false, as we shall inform the reader presently. But whether Northerton was carried away in the thunder or fire, or in whatever other manner he was gone, it was now certain that his body was no longer in custody. Upon this occasion the lieutenant formed a conclusion not very different from what the sergeant is just mentioned to have made before, and immediately ordered the sentinel to be taken prisoner, so that by a strange reverse in fortune, though not very uncommon in military life, the guard became the guarded. CHAPTER fifteen: THE CONCLUSION OF THE FOREGOING ADVENTURE Besides the suspicion of sleep, the lieutenant harboured another and worse doubt against the poor sentinel, and this was that of treachery, for as he believed not one syllable of the apparition, so he imagined the whole to be an invention formed only to impose upon him, and that the fellow had in reality been bribed by Northerton to let him escape. And this he imagined the rather, as the fright appeared to him the more unnatural in one who had the character of as brave and bold a man as any in the regiment, having been in several actions, having received several wounds, and in a word having behaved himself always like a good and valiant soldier. That the reader therefore may not conceive the least ill opinion of such a person, we shall not delay a moment in rescuing his character from the imputation of this guilt. Mr. Northerton, then, as we have observed, was fully satisfied with the glory which he had obtained from this action. He had perhaps seen, or heard, or guessed, that envy is apt to attend fame. Nor that I would here insinuate that he was heathenishly inclined to believe in or to worship the goddess Nemesis, for in fact I am convinced he had never heard her name. He was, besides, of an active disposition, and had a great antipathy to those close quarters in the castle of Gloucester, for which a justice of peace might possibly give him a billet. Nor was he moreover free from some uneasy meditations on a certain wooden edifice, which I forbear to name, in conformity to the opinion of mankind, who I think rather ought to honour than to be ashamed of this building, as it is, or at least might be made, of more benefit to society than almost any other public erection. In a word, to hint at no more reasons for his conduct, Mr. Northerton was desirous of departing that evening, and nothing remained for him but to contrive the Quomodo, which appeared to be a matter of some difficulty. 
Now this young gentleman, though somewhat crooked in his morals, was perfectly straight in his person, which was extremely strong and well made. His face, too, was accounted handsome by the generality of women, for it was broad and ruddy, with tolerably good teeth. Such charms did not fail making an impression on my landlady, who had no little relish for this kind of beauty. She had, indeed, a real compassion for the young man, and hearing from the surgeon that affairs were like to go ill with the volunteer, she suspected they might hereafter wear no benign aspect with the ensign. Having obtained, therefore, leave to make him a visit, and finding him in a very melancholy mood, which she considerably heightened by telling him there were scarce hopes of the volunteer's life, she proceeded to throw forth some hints, which the other readily and eagerly taking up, they soon came to a right understanding, and it was at length agreed that the ensign should, at a certain signal, ascend the chimney, which, communicating very soon with that of the kitchen, he might there again let himself down, for which she would give him an opportunity by keeping the coast clear. But lest our readers of a different complexion should take this occasion of too hastily condemning all compassion as folly, and pernicious to society, we think proper to mention another particular which might possibly have some little share in this action. The ensign happened to be at this time possessed of the sum of fifty pounds, which did indeed belong to the whole company, for the captain having quarrelled with his lieutenant, had entrusted the payment of his company to the ensign. This money, however, he thought proper to deposit in my landlady's hand, possibly by way of bail or security that he would hereafter appear in answer to the charge against him. But whatever were the conditions, certain it is that she had the money, and the ensign had his liberty. The reader may perhaps expect, from the compassionate temper of this good woman, that when she saw the poor sentinel taken prisoner for a fact of which she knew him innocent, she should immediately have interposed in his behalf. But whether it was that she had already exhausted all her compassion in the above-mentioned instance, or that the features of this fellow, though not very different from those of the ensign, could not raise it, I will not determine. But far from being an advocate for the present prisoner, she urged his guilt to the officer, declaring with uplifted eyes and hands that she would not have had any concern in the escape of a murderer for all the world. Everything was now once more quiet, and most of the company returned again to their beds. But the landlady, either from the natural activity of her disposition, or from her fear for her plate, having no propensity to sleep, prevailed with the officers, as they were to march within little more than an hour, to spend that time with her over a bowl of punch. Jones had lain awake all this while, and had heard great part of the hurry and bustle that had passed, of which he had now some curiosity to know the particulars. He therefore applied to his bell, which he rung at least twenty times without any effect, for my landlady was in such high mirth with her company that no clapper could be heard there but her own, and the drawer and chambermaid, who were sitting together in the kitchen, for neither durst he sit up nor she lie in bed alone, the more they heard the bell ring, the more they were frightened, and as it were, nailed down in their places. At last, at a lucky interval of chat, the sound reached the ears of our good landlady, who presently sent forth her summons, which both servants instantly obeyed. "'Joe,' says the mistress, "'don't you hear the gentleman's bell ring? Why don't you go up?' "'It is not my business,' answered the drawer, "'to wait upon the chambers. It is Betty Chambermaid's.' "'If you come to that,' answered the maid, "'it is not my business to wait upon gentlemen.' I have done it indeed sometimes, but the devil fetch me if I ever do it again, since you make your preambles about it. The bell still ringing violently, their mistress fell into a passion, and swore if the drawer did not go up immediately, she would turn him away that very morning. 
"'If you do, madam,' says he, "'I can't help it. "'I won't do another servant's business.' "'She then applied herself to the maid, "'and endeavoured to prevail by gentle means, "'but all in vain. "'Betty was as inflexible as Joe. "'Both insisted it was not their business, "'and they would not do it. "'The lieutenant then fell a-laughing, "'and said, "'Come, I will put an end to this contention.' and then turning to the servants, commended them for their resolution in not giving up the point, but added he was sure if one would consent to go, the other would, to which proposal they both agreed in an instant, and accordingly went up very lovingly and close together. When they were gone, the lieutenant appeased the wrath of the landlady, by satisfying her why they were both so unwilling to go alone. They returned soon after, and acquainted their mistress that the sick gentleman was so far from being dead, that he spoke as heartily as if he was well, and that he gave his service to the captain, and should be very glad of the favour of seeing him before he marched. The good lieutenant immediately complied with his desires, and sitting down by his bedside, acquainted him with the scene which had happened below, concluding with his intentions to make an example of the sentinel. Upon this Jones related to him the whole truth, and earnestly begged him not to punish the poor soldier, who I am confident, says he, is as innocent of the ensign's escape as he is of forging any lie, or of endeavouring to impose upon you. The lieutenant hesitated a few moments, and then answered, Why, as you have cleared the fellow of one part of the charge, so it will be impossible to prove the other, because he was not the only sentinel. But I have a good mind to punish the rascal for being a coward. Yet who knows what effect the terror of such an apprehension may have, and to say the truth he has always behaved well against an enemy." "'Come, it is a good thing to see any sign of religion in these fellows, "'so I promise you he shall be set at liberty when we march. "'But hark, the general beats. "'My dear boy, give me another bus. "'Don't discompose nor hurry yourself, "'but remember the Christian doctrine of patience, "'and I warrant you will soon be able to do yourself justice, "'and to take an honourable revenge on the fellow who hath injured you.' "'The lieutenant then departed, "'and Jones endeavoured to compose himself to rest.' End of Book 7 End of section 27.